I have found out beat news in depth for you. Good evening and welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, we have some amazing guests on with us tonight, starting with the two plaintiffs from the Proposition 8 case here in California. Jeff Cirillo and Paul Katami put themselves and their relationship in front of three different courts, including the United States Supreme Court. And they're here with us tonight to talk about their amazing journey that ended at Los Angeles City Hall, where they were married by former Mayor Villaraigosa. And on tonight's Outbeat You segment, we have members from Positive Images here with us to talk about how North Bay schools are supporting LGBT youth and to share some of the exciting changes at Positive Images. All of this is coming up right after your Outbeat Radio news for this Sunday, February 23rd, 2014. I have found Outbeat Radio news, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. A new study was released this week that found that lesbian, gay, and bisexual people who live in an anti-gay community stand to live a shorter life than those who live in a supporting one. The Columbia University study, which was published online in the Social Science and Medicine Journal, found that lesbian, gay, and bisexual people in communities with higher levels of anti-gay prejudice lived an average of 12 years less than their counterparts in more accepting environments. The study's lead author, Mark Hotzenbuehler, an assistant professor of social medicine sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health, said, Our findings indicate that sexual minorities living in communities with higher levels of prejudice die sooner than sexual minorities living in low-prejudice communities, and that these effects are independent of established risk factors for mortality, including household income, education, gender, ethnicity, and age, as well as the average income and education level of the residents in the communities where the respondents live. The survey examined data over a decade-long period from 1998 to 2008. As the Advocate and other publications have pointed out, many of the deaths in the survey were attributed to suicide and cardiovascular diseases in the high-prejudice communities. Meanwhile, LGBT people were more prone to commit suicide at a younger average age, 37 and a half, than those in more welcoming communities, 55.7 years while violent deaths were nearly three times more likely in homophobic areas. And in Arizona, the state Senate passed a bill on Wednesday backed by Republicans that expands the rights of people to assert their religious beliefs in refusing service to gays and others, a measure Democrats say will open the door for discrimination and hurt the state's economy. Democrats and civil rights groups opposed the bill that was pushed by social conservatives, saying it would allow discriminatory actions by businesses. But sponsor, Senator Steve Yarbrough of Chandler, said his push for Senate Bill 1062 was prompted by a New Mexico case in which the state Supreme Court allowed a gay couple to sue a photographer who would not take pictures at their wedding. Yarbrough said, this bill is not about allowing discrimination. It's about preventing discrimination against people who are clearly living out their faith. The bill passed on a 17-13 to party-line vote. And here in Napa this week, approximately 300 students, many wearing pink, gathered in front of Redwood Middle School to support two of their classmates who are gay. Redwood principal Drew Heron said the protest was prompted by a social media post which implied that the school was trying to separate the two students from being a couple. That report is untrue. Heron said we don't determine who can be together. Redwood does have a rule, however, against public displays of affection. Students are only allowed to hold hands, and this applies to all couples. Knowing that the students were planning a protest, the middle school invited Napa's LGBTQ connection to the campus on Tuesday to provide further support and resources. 
Vanessa Cavallaro, a program coordinator for the LGBTQ Connection, said, After a number of students shared their feelings about the recent happenings, a core group of students and teachers initiated the formation of a gay-straight alliance club at the school. The first GSA meeting happened that same day. She added, Research shows that schools with a visible, vibrant, and consistent gay-straight alliance cultivate a safe and healthy environment for all students, regardless of their sexual orientation. She added, the LGBTQ connection will continue to offer its assistance to Redwood students and staff in any way that they can. For information about local LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And if you have news or an event you'd like to share with our listeners, tell us about it by going to our own website at OutBeatNews.com. You can follow us all week long on Facebook and Twitter for the latest LGBT news and information from here in the North Bay and beyond. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. It was 10 years ago this month that the former mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom, declared that California's limitation on marriage to that of opposite-sex couples was unconstitutional, and he ordered the city clerk to start issuing marriage licenses immediately. Daughters of Belitis founders Del Martins and Phyllis Lyons were the first same-sex couple to marry, and it was an order that started a nine-year battle for marriage equality here in California that ended up at the United States Supreme Court. Jeff Cirillo and Paul Katami were one of the couples that offered themselves and their relationship to test the power and the meaning of the 14th Amendment. And like Dell and Phyllis back in 2004, Jeff and Paul put a face on the issue of marriage equality. Here's a bit of what they had to say from the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court on the day the Prop 8 decision was announced. You know, today is a great day. We, um, we enter this building and we always see those words, equal justice under the law. And today, we're closer to that equality. We're lucky, and we know that the fight continues across this country. We cannot forget our LGBT brothers and sisters that are in states that still discriminate against them, and we will not allow it. We will continue the fight until all of us are equal. You know, Prop 8 did one thing. It really helped us turn anger into action. It led to the foundation, the, equal, the American Foundation for Equal Rights. It led to this case and to today's victory as well. And we stand on the shoulders of so many people that came before us, people that risked their lives to stand up and be who they are. They gave us the legs to stand up on today. They gave us the momentum to run with and the voice to speak loudly and say proudly that we are gay. We are American and we will not be treated like second-class citizens. So, although we celebrate today, although we celebrate today, we work to make sure that everyone like Jeff and I and Chris and Sandy, we just want to get married because it's the natural next step in our relationship. We want to join the institution of marriage, not to take anything away, but to strengthen it and to live up to its ideals. So today is a good day. Today I finally get to look at the man that I love and finally say, Will you please marry me? <laughs> Joining us tonight to tell us more about their experience with this historic case is Jeff Cirillo and his husband, Paul Katami. Jeff and Paul, welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Well, I'm really excited to have you both here to share your story with our listeners. Now, you two have been together for 12 years now, and you've seen this fight for marriage equality here in California really from the very beginning. 
But before we get to your journey with Prop 8, tell us how you two met. Well, uh, just in a few short weeks, we'll start lucky number 13. Uh, Paul and I are an online success story. We met, I was new to California back in 1999. And um, I'm sorry, I was back in 1999. Um, I was new to California and was looking for friends. And uh, in 2001, I found Paul and the rest is history. Was that on gay.com by chance? Yes, it was. Yes, another success story. That's how I met my husband. <laughs> well, there wasn't many websites back then. That's right. Um, so it was really it was it was an opportunity for me uh, to meet friends and and because uh, I was also newly out, so that was important mm-hmm. too. I took Jeff to his very first gay bar. Wow. <laughs> and um, and I had to you know preface it by saying I'm going out with some friends. <laughs> You're welcome to come, but it is a gay bar and. Uh, and as he says, the rest is history. Well, that's so, so great. And yes, it has been history uh, and a pretty amazing one at that. Let's go back to the very beginning. Tell us about how you got involved with the Prop 8 case. You know, it's a funny, it's, it, Jeff always jokes it's a long story about how we became plaintiffs, <laughs> but it really is uh, something very simple. Um, you know, after Prop 8 passed in 2008, uh, shortly after that, um, the National Organization for Marriage put out a commercial called The Gathering Storm. Um, uh, although I won't recommend it, you can YouTube it and watch it, but, uh, <laughs> it, uh, it upset us beyond the initial upset of Prop 8 being passed to the point where we put together a video response, uh, with real people, real friends, real parents, um, you know, real children of gay parents. And that response overnight got a viral response that was more than we ever expected. And that really kind of thrust us into a little bit of a spotlight when it came to Prop 8 and got us connected with the American Foundation for Equal Rights, Chad Griffin and Christina Shockey, who were uh, formulating the organization to create support for this lawsuit. And you're right. They've done a truly amazing job orchestrating all of this. Now, the marriage equality case has made appearances in courts really at all levels. Where did your case begin? Uh, this is Jeff. Uh, we uh, we went up to Northern California. Everything took place uh, up in the Federal District Court of Northern California. So uh, we, I think it was around July of 2009, we had our first hearing. Uh, and there were a couple of hearings until the Judge Walker decided he actually wanted to have a trial. And then the actual official trial started in January of 2010. Wow. And talk about Judge Walker a little bit. I mean, we've learned a lot about him after the trial. Uh, there were certainly some things about uh, him being gay that were rumored out there. What was it like to be in his courtroom and to interact with him? Uh, this is Jeff. Uh, I think we had heard rumblings that the, the judge may be gay, but uh, that really that really wasn't a concern for us. You know, just like if there were other lawsuits involving African-Americans or women uh, or something of that nature— you would expect, you know, those judges to preside over those trials, so it shouldn't be an issue. Uh, we found Judge Walker to be nothing but fair, um, extremely articulate, uh, actually quite charming in the courtroom, funny. Um, but the most important thing was uh, he knew how big this case could be and how important it was that we build a record with evidence and witnesses and expert testimony that could stand the test of time and ultimately help us get to where we wanted mm-hmm. to go. 
Yeah. And I have to imagine that had to be a really intense experience. I know from having testified in court myself in the past, particularly in a federal court, it's very intimidating. And here you guys are really putting yourselves and your relationship on trial, right? That's exactly right. I mean, we we describe it exactly like that. Um, a lot of people have described it about, you know, you put your love on trial to prove that it is no different than anyone else's love and that it should be protected by the same rights that everyone else has. Right. So when you started out, did you ever predict that he would write such an amazing decision, you know, as you saw this thing unfold? Well, it's interesting. When we initially asked David Boyce what he thought the opinion would be, he said it would be about 50 pages, but it turned out to be about 136 pages. We just assumed that there would be a couple sentences explaining the ruling and why he felt that way. But apparently there's these things called findings of fact, and they're really the most important thing in a court ruling. And he found 88 findings of fact for the for our case, which really just uh, what he says uh, – defines a finding of fact is when an expert goes up there or a witness goes up there and makes a testimony, he believes it to be absolutely true. And he believes that that is a factor in finding his decision. And the fact that he found 88 and wrote a 136-page opinion so eloquently that has now withstood um, every uh, appeal that we've been to is really fantastic. So then after Judge Walker's truly amazing ruling, the appeals began, and the next step was the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then ultimately the Supreme Court. Did you see this playing out that way through every level of appeal from the very beginning? This is Paul. Yeah, I mean, this that exactly was um, the plan, in, but I don't think anyone expected the trial in Judge Walker's courtroom to, to come up. So... That was definitely a twist that no one expected, but it, you know, ultimately, in retrospect, it made all the difference in the world uh, for the reasons Jeff had, has just mentioned. But um, the goal was always the Supreme Court. I think that they figured a series of motions um, would get us there, um, ultimately a trial and bouncing around between the Supreme Court of California and the Ninth Circus uh, ultimately landed us there. But that was the goal. Sure. So tell us what it was like. You traveled to D.C. for it, and what was it like to walk in that building? You know, I, this is Jeff. It was really surreal, and the only way I can describe it is it was it was like you were walking onto a movie set, and it, it's, ex, it's ex, everything that you think it will be and more. Uh, it's, it's a large, grandiose room with uh, large curtains and freeze on, uh, freezes on the wall and artwork and... Uh, then you have those enormous, the enormous bench, and it's one long bench with um, nine really tall uh, leather-back chairs, and it's just a really powerful moment to walk in there. And then sitting there, it's, it's really a bunch of really wooden church pews uh, when you sit there and, and you wait for the judges to come out. And I, the one thing I remember specifically waiting there was there's a, there's a clock on the wall, and, it, and it's almost like you can hear it ticking and you get to a five minute warning and an alarm and like a little alarm goes off to let you know. And then it's really the, the anticipation really builds until the moment that all nine of them appear at the same time. And that process alone has so much drama behind it as each one of the justices appears from behind the, the curtain to take their seat. 
as you saw them walk out there, it must have been something to look into their eyes and know that they were going to be making decisions about your relationship. What was that like? It's hard to, as, you know, a basic citizen, to sit there and think, okay, here I am at the Supreme Court of the United States, which is an opportunity that not a lot of people get to, to see. But then to be there for your case, <laughs> your name is on um, the, the case, it, it, is, it is overwhelming. I think, it, I think it's a sobering moment because you realize that although we herald the Supreme Court as, as the highest court of the land and, and we, we hold these people up on a pedestal, we realize that they're just human beings as well. And right. I think that that was the goal of Ted and David was to say, listen, we are here to really, you know, lean on the Constitution and the 14th Amendment, but we're also here to lean on humanity. We're also here to really define this as a civil right that treats humans as equal. So it was this really amazing moment to be able to, you know, you almost feel like you can look each justice in the eye <laughs> and 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 kind of say that, you know, make that statement for yourself as like, we're here for for equality, we're here for dignity, we're here for respect and liberty, and all those things lie in the Constitution that you're here to really protect. Right. And that's, I think you make a really good point about being able to look them in the eye. I have to imagine, at least for some of them that are more on the reasonable side, that you being there, I mean, it's one thing to have the attorneys argue for you, but you're there, and they're having to look you straight in the eye and look at your relationship and make a judgment about that you know, as a human being, all politics aside, that had to have been a really powerful influence, I would think. Well, this is Paul again. I think that 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 exemplifies the exact reason that people move from the middle to what we consider the right side of this topic Mm -hmm. is because it's really easy to demonize an idea. It's really easy to hear, you know, junk science or to take a look at a campaign, you know, marketing asset and make a decision based on that or, a, a, you know, a, a kind of a gunshot decision. Um, but when you actually really meet the person or the people that it affects and you understand how it damages their lives and you could look in their eyes, it takes a lot to demonize that person. Right. And so I think it, what it really does is it kind of lifts that veil and allows people to understand the human side of it versus the political side or the moral side or the religious side of the argument. Um, and it changes the dialogue. Right. And there were some pretty funny moments in all of that as well. I mean, it was a very serious, there was a lot of emotion involved in the arguments back and forth, but there were some pretty funny moments too. What, what do you remember as something that you still laugh at? I think I still laugh at the Scalia-Ted Olson exchange. I think that was a really uh, interesting moment of, of, of Ted Olson, who was arguing in front of the Supreme Court you know, approximately 60 times and has won, I think, over 80% of them. Uh, he had an exchange with Justice Kennedy, Justice Scalia when um, he was asked, uh, when did it become illegal for, you know, he calls them homosexuals, which drives me crazy. When did it become illegal for homosexuals to marry? What year was it? Was it, uh, and he rattled off a couple of years, and, and then instead of answering the question, uh, Ted Olson said, well, when did it become illegal for uh, interracial interracial um, people would get married. Uh, and he said, well, and then Scalia answered that question and then realized that he doesn't have to answer a question as a justice and said to, to Ted Olson, uh, don't answer my question with a question. And it, it got a lot of laughter in the courtroom, but it just goes to show you how passionate Ted was about and continues to be about this issue, that he wasn't going to let 
uh, an ignorant conversation uh, com- uh, question from a justice uh, set him back. Yeah, he's he is really smooth. I think both of them are just absolutely amazing. Talk about what it was like to work with Ted and David. Uh, Paul here again. It's interesting because when you first meet Ted and David, well, individually you think one thing, you know, what am I going to have in common with Ted Olson? <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a lot that we could disagree on, but when we sat down to meet and talk to him about this, we found out just where his heart was. Um, not only was his brain in the right place in terms of understanding that this was a civil rights issue that is protected by our Constitution, but his heart was in the right place as well. And he put his arm around us and said, you know, this is probably the most important thing I'll ever do in my career as a lawyer, but also as a human being. Wow. And, and that really was a moment for us to understand that even though you can have fundamental differences with someone, you can come together um, on this topic and understand that it's not a partisan issue, that it's not um, an issue of morals or religion or it is a really an issue of humanity and teaching you know treating people equally and david boys we knew we would like just because you know we, we, we agree with this politics we agree with this politics right. so, um that was an easier moment but what was really amazing about david boys was his brilliance just his sheer, we say it to this day even after we see him for you know a dinner we'll we just walk away going you know this guy is brilliant and sweet and kind and profoundly like simple in a way he just knows how to say the things in the right way he there's nothing superfluous about his statements or his work he just gets to the point and he makes sure that he always you know wins because of that and you know it's what the best part about the case was watching david boyce cross-examine in the in judge walker's courtroom because he's like a surgeon he really does know how to cut right through an argument get to where he needs to be and he ultimately made that one witness that he got to cross-examine come over to our side. And his statements were more beneficial to us than they were to his side. So right. it's actually pretty amazing. Who are some of the other people that you met along the way? I mean, you've met so many people who came to support us and you know, some to oppose us as well. Talk about some of the other people you were impressed with. Uh, this is Jeff again. I, you know, of course, we, you know, we've met a lot of people along the way with regards to um, people that have been actually involved in our lawsuit from our, you know, it's not just Ted and David, it's, it's a laundry list of attorneys and we've, we've gotten to know all of them very well and, and they all had uh, particular contributions to the case. Of course, you have the people at the American Foundation for Equal Rights with Chad Griffin and Christina Shockey and, and Adam Umhafer. Uh, but one thing Paul and I have always said through this four and a half, five years, what moves us the most is the people that we don't know that come up to us just to have a conversation or just to thank us for, for taking the time um, out of our lives to do this. And, uh, and more specifically, the younger people. We've had conversations at high schools and colleges, and it's really, really um, amazed us at how precocious so many of these people are, especially at, the, uh, at a high school age. And I think, Paul, and I really admire that. We're really proud of that. Because I think it's something that we would love to have been and love to have had those those uh, those feelings of of freedom at such a young age. Mm-hmm. So, what did you find most challenging about the whole experience? I mean, this really had to test the strength of your relationship from the ground up. What was the most challenging part for you? Well, this is Jeff. Uh, it, well, in a four and a half year battle, uh, 
you know, you certainly are going to have a lot of ups and a lot of downs. And we're very fortunate to have a lot of ups because we, we won at every level. And we really have said all along that, that this, this process brought us stronger, made us stronger, brought us closer together. Uh, lots of times in a relationship, uh, when, there's, when there's stress or there's problems, uh, sometimes there are outside factors at play there. And it's one person in the relationship going through it and the other person's there to support. Well, we were both going through the exact same thing. And so we were there for each other. We could empathize with each other. So the process made our love stronger and made our desire to get married uh, deeper. And ultimately, when all was said and done, I think we've come out um, a better couple. Um, and, and, you know, our love is, is, you know, really, really strong now. Awesome. Well, I remember watching you get married uh, on Rachel Maddow's show and the anticipation of that. You know, we knew it was going to happen. What was that like for you to get married on inter- literally international TV by the then mayor of L.A.? This is Paul. You know, that whole day leading into that weekend was such a blur for us. We literally had to sit down a week later and watch it on TiVo <laughs> because we had to really, you know, it was such a whirlwind. We did not expect to get married that day. Um, we did not expect that day to turn out the way it did. Um, and it was, like you said, what we came away with it after the experience was exactly what you just said. Friends that were in Greece or you get an email from, you know, some strange person that you don't know who lives in a foreign land who says, I just watched on a small black and white TV in a hut in a place that you got married and that meant something to us. Um, to us, it was a whirlwind. We knew it was symbolic. We knew it was the end of this battle for us. And we knew that it would have implications across the country. So we just, in those moments, it was a, it was a lot of smiling and nodding. But the biggest question that came to people was, did it feel any different saying I do? Um, and it made all the difference in the world. Sure. So even after being together for 12 years, going through this battle, wanting this so much, um, you know, you have that worry, you know, is it going to live up to everything we fought for? And it does. We were on the other side of it now. We can say that absolutely that moment changed everything. It brought us closer together. It galvanized, you know, our, the message of our movement of what happened with our case. And it, like you said, it, it really went beyond just us. It really touched a lot of people around the world. And that message, I think, is incredible. Any message that tells you know, a youth in Russia or Nigeria or all these places that you're seeing these atrocities happen, any message that tells that person you're okay um, is anything that is more than we ever expected to be a part of this, this, this case. Sure. So what's next for you in this movement? I know you're working now with Campus Pride, which is the nation's largest LGBT advocacy organization for colleges and universities. Are you going to be doing some speaking? You know, with working with Campus Pride, we would like to expand that messaging. We'd like to lend our voice however we can. So we are definitely um, still involved. I think this whole thing has really lit a fire in us. And um, now that we've been through the, the process, we can help plaintiffs in other states that are going through it. There's, you know, there's over 35 other cases right now in different states that are pending and uh, we, if we can lend our voice to support that, 
in any way we will. Fantastic. Well, that's uh, you've got quite a future laid out for you. It's going to take a while to get those other states to turn, um, but I know those folks will appreciate your support. Personally, and, and on behalf of all of our listeners, thanks for investing so much of your lives in fighting for our rights. I know there's a lot of people involved in it, but you two were two of the faces of it. And I think it was the authenticity of your story and the commitment of your relationship that turned those justices and, and got us the votes we needed. So thank you for that. Well, thank you very much for having us. It's very generous of you, and we're happy to, happy to be here, and, and thank you for having us. Awesome. Awesome. And thanks for being on our show. Of course. Here's LA's former mayor of Villa Ragosa marrying Jeff and Paul at LA City Hall. I couldn't be more honest to stand here today to join Paul and Jeff in marriage during these, the closing moments of my administration. And so let us begin. Take it in. <laughs> Just take it in. We are gathered here today for the purpose of uniting in matrimony Paul Katami and Jeff Zarilla. Now the contract of marriage is most solemn and is not to be entered into lightly, but thoughtfully and seriously with a deep realization of its obligations and its responsibilities. Is also a promise made in the hearts of two people who love each other, and that promise will take a lifetime to fulfill. Now, within the circle of its love, marriage encompasses all of life's most important relationships. And so, Paul, you take Jeff to be your lawful wedded spouse. I do. Jeff, you take Paul to be your lawful wedded spouse. I do. Do you each promise to love and comfort one another, to honor and keep one another in sickness and in health, in prosperity and adversity, and forsaking all others, be faithful to each other as long as you both shall live. We do. I don't know about you, but I got goosebumps. <laughs> now, the wedding ring is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual bond, which unites two loyal hearts in endless love. Please place this ring on Jeff's left finger and repeat after me. I, Paul, I, Paul, offer this ring as a symbol of my love and devotion. Offer this ring as a symbol of my love and my devotion. Let it always be a reminder of my vows to you. Let it always be a reminder of my vows to you. Jeff, place this ring on Paul's left finger and repeat after me. I, Jeff, I, Jeff, offer this ring as a symbol 
of my love and devotion. Offer this ring as a symbol of my love and devotion. Let it always be a reminder of my vows to you. Let it always be a reminder of my vows to you. And so, on behalf of the state of California, let me pronounce you married. On this month's Outbeat Youth segment, we were scheduled to do a live interview with members of Positive Images. Unfortunately, just after the interview began, we were alerted of a fire occurring in our building and had to evacuate Studio A. We've invited Positive Images to return later this spring to follow up on that interview. As for the fire, it ended up being something very small in an electrical outlet. There are more than 2,000 people living with HIV and AIDS in Sonoma County. 500 of them don't know they have it, so neither do their partners. If you've ever suspected you've been exposed to HIV and want to know whether you're carrying the virus that could lead to AIDS, there's a place you can be tested for free, confidentially, and anonymously with results in just 20 minutes. Call face-to-face at 544-1581 or visit f2f.org. We want you to know your status. And that brings us to the end of our hour. I'd like to thank my special guests tonight, Jeff Cirillo and Paul Katami, as well as everyone from Positive Images for joining us. Tune in on the fourth Sunday of March for the next edition of Outbeat News in Depth, and next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio, the new 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutbeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond.